Good morning to you all. Can I wish you a happy uh, British summertime, which I think, if I've understood it correctly, means we get an extra hour of cloud every day. Um, and uh, greetings from JPC, those of you who have uh, connections with uh, uh, the church that I serve. I recently read a Christian book called Being the Bad Guys, and it says this, quote, A few generations ago, Christianity was the good guy, the solution to what was bad, and our culture affirmed Christians. Then, during the 20th century, we became just one of the guys, one option among many. Uh, if Christianity worked for you, fine, but if it didn't work for me, also fine. Now the tide has turned, and increasingly, Christianity is viewed as the bad guy, no longer an option, but a problem. And instead, what is now being offered so positively is the hope of a new world that is all glitter and rainbows. Online articles, news stories, and movies all showcase people who once lost and confused or struggling with identity because of standards imposed on them have now been freed by being true to who they feel themselves to be. We are offered a narrative that aims first to expose the Christian gospel as bad news and then to replace it with much-needed good news. End of quote. In other words, as you know, we're being told that uh, living under any external authority, let alone God, uh, is bad, whereas living under your own authority, being yourself, is blessing, which is the Bible's word for the good life. So our question this morning is this, what is true blessing? Well, the very beginning of Genesis about creation says that we will only find true blessing if we find our identity in the God who made us and we live under his authority, which Adam and Eve did briefly. Genesis then says they doubted God, they walked away from him, decided to find blessing uh, in their own way. And Genesis, if you read on, says that actually that step which we've all taken part in, that, that step doesn't lead to blessing, it leads to the opposite. So read on in Genesis and you find things like guilt and shame and relationships going pear-shaped. Then comes violence and the collapse of any sense of right and wrong and it gets so bad that God sends the flood as a judgment on it all, which is where your series began this time in Genesis. The flood wasn't the end. God saved Noah and his family to begin over again, but it wasn't a new beginning, was it? Because they came out of the ark with the same inclination to walk away from God as they took into the ark. And the human race just picked up where it had left off. And by Genesis 11, where you, you got to the other week, you've got this bleak picture of our world where the blessings of the beginning of Genesis are a distant memory. But then something happened which was like the launch pad of God's rescue plan to bring us back into the blessing of relationship with him. And that something was God calling Abraham. So can I encourage you to have the Bibles open at page 8? That will get you to Genesis chapter 11. We're restarting in at uh, 11 verse 27. Uh, and before we do, let me lead us in a prayer. Father God, in, in the New Testament part of your word, we read that all scripture is God-breathed and useful. So please would you make this time useful in this part of the Old Testament scriptures uh, to help our knowledge of you and your plan for our lives. In Jesus' name.
Amen. So have a look at Genesis 11, verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah, and that means this is the story of Terah's children. And not story as in fiction, we're we're talking true story, history, as we always are with Bible story. So Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Uh, Later on, Abram gets renamed Abraham. Uh, So just remember they're the same person. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran fathered Lot, who was Abram's nephew and a pain in the neck. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. So Abram was born and brought up in this place called Ur, which I always like to think was twinned with the city of Um, uh, but that's, that's complete fiction. Um, Ur was hundreds of miles away from Canaan, where Abram moves in chapter 12. And later in the Bible, uh, Joshua says this, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, the, the river, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and just get this, they served other gods. Then I took your father Abram from beyond the river and I led him through all the land of Canaan. So if you think that the Lord called Abram because Abram already believed in him uh, or because he was somehow more open to him, more spiritual than other people, think again. Abram started out life believing in other gods. You know, if there had been census in those days, he'd have ticked other religion, whatever it would have been. So Abram is the prototype of all of us like me who were converted from a completely non-Christian, non-church background. Um, He's a reminder that the Lord plans to bring, you name it, Muslims, atheists, Buddhists, spiritualists, I don't know what you are here this morning if you're not yet a Christian, There is no one here and no one around us that God does not want to have back in relationship with him. That's what Abram is the prototype of. Let's read on. Genesis 11, verse 29. Uh, Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscar. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. There are two big things to see in today's passage. Here's the first. The plan that we're called to be part of. The plan that we're called to be part of. Look at Genesis 12, verse 1. Now, the Lord said, or the footnote had said, this is probably a flashback to when he was in Ur, the Lord had, the Lord had said back then to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now that is the foundational promise of the Bible 
The whole of the rest of the Bible is simply God keeping that promise. In that sense, the Bible is a very simple book. So we need to get that the Bible is not God basically saying, do. You do this for me. Lots of people think it's just a rule book and that if we keep the rules enough, God will accept us. That's total nonsense. Because as Genesis 1 to 11 shows, our hearts are inclined to walk away from God, just like your normal shopping trolley is just inclined to go anywhere but straight ahead. So even if God had given us a rule book, if he thought that's going to solve the world's problems, we would never have been able to keep it. The Bible is not a rule book. God knew we needed rescue, not rules. He knew we needed to be forgiven back into the blessing of relationship with him and that that is the only thing that will change human beings. And that's what he said he would do in this foundational promise of the Bible. So please, please get this. The Bible is not a rule book. It's a rescue book. God does not come to us saying, you do this. He comes to us saying, I will do this for you. That's, that's the way relationship with God works. He comes and says, you're not in a position to do anything to solve the problems in your life or in the world. I will do something for you. It's all about God's plan to rescue our relationship with him. So what did God promise here? Well, first of all, he promised people. Look again at verse 2, where God said to Abram, and I will make of you, one single guy, a great nation. Which didn't just mean that Abraham would have uh, lots of physical descendants and become a great race. God deliberately used the word nation, which means people from any number of races living together under one ruler. Because what God had in mind, first of all, was that he would make his Old Testament people, Israel, living under kings like David. Then he had in mind that he would revamp Israel after Jesus' first coming, and his people would become an international body, the worldwide church. But ultimately, he had in mind, right at the end of the Bible, that picture in Revelation where it says there was a great multitude from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Now, Abraham did not know most of that at the time just like we mostly don't know the future significance of what God is doing in our lives right now. But it's what God had in mind from the get-go. So he promised people, then he promised blessing. Look at verse 2 again. And I will make of you, Abram, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. So blessing is, is the Bible jargon for the life that is good for us, the life we were made for. We will only experience that in relationship with God. And God said to Abraham, Look, that, that is what I want for you. I want good for you. I want the best for you. Which is precisely what our culture does not believe about God, does, he? does it? You know, it? God is the cosmic killjoy, according to our culture. But God says, I will bless you and make your name great 
so that also you will be a blessing. In other words, so that you'll pass on the blessing to others. You're, you're not to keep the privilege of knowing me to yourself. So from the get-go in Genesis 12, evangelism or, or witness or mission, whatever you want to label it as, was part of the plan. So that those of us who already know the Lord uh, are to make him known to others. And I, I gather that Ken was uh, teaching that uh, a couple of weeks ago by plying you with uh, a vast tub of chocolates uh, to share. You don't keep it to yourself. You share. And that explains the beginning of verse 3, where God said, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, or some translations say disdain you or reject you, I will curse and that's because if, if someone blesses God's people, it means they're positive towards them. It means they're, they're open towards them, which means they stand a chance of being blessed through their witness and actually coming to know God themselves. Whereas if someone dishonors God's people, um, like I, I remember after I became a Christian at, at school, those of us in the Christian Union, we were, we were just written off as the God Squad. We, we had bits of paper with, with messages about how we were the God Squad and the Bible bashers stuck to our study doors, um, or maybe a non-Christian husband is really dismissive of his wife. Why, why are you wasting time with, with church? And they're, they're closing themselves off to being blessed through the witness of that Christian. Everything hangs on how they respond to the person who has the blessing already. But the climax of the promise is the end of verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, Abraham, through, through you, a single person, down the tracks, people from all over the world will be blessed by being brought back into relationship with God. You think, what a ridiculously unbelievable promise to one guy. And how big is the church today? 2.6 billion? It's been kept. Here's what our New Testament reading from Galatians said about that verse. And the scripture, that means the bit of the Old Testament we're looking at, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, the nations, by faith, listen to this, preached the gospel beforehand to Abram, saying, and here's Genesis 12, verse 3, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So what we're reading in Genesis 12 is the gospel. The Bible is just one book about the same thing from a whole lot of different angles. So again, Abraham didn't know it at the time, but God was just promising the gospel. He was promising Jesus coming to rescue us from living without him by dying for us on the cross to forgive us back into the blessing of relationship with the God who made us. And that's what we're going to remember and celebrate uh, with communion uh, a little bit later. So God promised people blessing, and thirdly, he promised place. So look back to verse 1, and it says, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And then if you skip to verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So in the first place, uh, God had in mind, literally, the promised land of Canaan, uh, where Israel lived. 
Because the blessing of being back in relationship with God um, is not some kind of airy-fairy spiritual thing. If you're just looking into all this, it's not something just otherworldly. It's about living in the real world, in real life, in God's creation, under God as the ruler of your life. So it's about homes and houses and families and child rearing and work and farming and money and business and society and justice and health in the environment and you name it, all lived out under the lordship of God. And that's why God knew Israel needed a real solid place, a, a corner of his creation uh, to do that in as a kind of pilot project of what the whole of the human race was meant to be doing. But he also knew that sin meant that it was going to be a hopelessly imperfect pilot project and ultimately a failed pilot project. And that for the perfect vision, we would have to wait at the end of the story for a new place, a new creation, the place that the book of Revelation is talking about, which lies beyond this fallen one, but which the promised land was a kind of visual aid of. So that's the plan that God called Abram to be part of. And it is the plan that we are called to be part of uh, as well. The big difference, obviously, is that we live this side of Jesus' first coming. So we know the rescue in this plan depends on Jesus' death and resurrection, which is why Easter is a much bigger deal than Christmas. So we should be having trees and presents, and we should be doing much more for it than for Christmas. And like verse 2 says, if we're trusting in Jesus, God has blessed us with knowledge of him so that we might bless others with it. We're not to keep that privilege to ourselves. And even if our culture does make us out to be the bad guys, to go back to that quote that I began with, because we don't believe this or we won't affirm that, we need to remember that actually it is us who have this astonishing privilege of the good news and gently and patiently and lovingly, we need to keep trying to live that out uh, and holding that message out to those around us. So that's the plan we're called to be part of. The other thing, more briefly, is this. The people we're called to be. The people we're called to be. And in a nutshell, we are called to be like Abraham in the way he responded to God. Not that he was any less sinful and imperfect, than we are, uh, but there is plenty in him to learn from and follow. So let's run through a few. The first thing to learn is that we are called to receive grace. So we saw earlier that Abram did not grow up as a nice kid in the Baghdad Bible Belt. That's not how it began. He didn't start going to Sunday school and winning memory verse prizes. He started out as an out-and-out -out pagan, serving other gods, completely ignorant of the real one. And what did the real one do? Called him into relationship. As if to say, whoever you are, whatever you've been believing up until now, whatever you, however you've been living up until now, I want you back in relationship with me, which is grace. Completely undeserved, all forgiving love. I will overlook the fact that you've ignored me and live completely the wrong way. Come on, back in relationship with me. And I want to say the most important thing you may need to do today is either to receive grace for the first time, accept that relationship, or to start receiving grace 
again. If you've got to the point of thinking you are such a rubbish Christian that God must have given up on you by now. Genesis does not pull its punches about how rubbish Abraham could be in his following of God, but God never gave up on him. Second thing to learn is that we are called to leave our past allegiances. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So not everything uh, about his culture back in Ur was wrong, but what was wrong about it, he had to leave behind. Not everything that that his dad had stood for and taught was wrong, but what was wrong about it, he had to leave behind. And if it came down to a choice between following the culture or following the Lord, um, pleasing his family and his old friends and pleasing the Lord, then he had to go with the Lord. And the same is true of us if we are saying, I'm following the Lord Jesus. Third thing to learn is that we are called to stand out openly and unashamedly for the Lord. Look on to verse 4. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 when he departed from Haran. And Abram Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they'd gathered, and the people they'd acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. You may have missed the significance of that, but in verse 6, this oak of Moreh would have been where the Canaanites worshipped their own gods. And the really striking thing is, you know, Abraham doesn't go quietly somewhere else to a different place out of sight and build his altar. No, he builds his altar smack by the Oak of Moray, okay? It's like going up to the West Road and planting a church right next to the mosque or next to the Gurdwara. I've completely flicked my pages. Where am I supposed to be? Here I am. Here I am. Um, It's very striking that, isn't it? It's one of those significant things that you don't spot maybe just at a first reading. He's saying openly and unashamedly, right by their church, in inverted commas, this is the God I worship. This is the God that I think is the only real one that there is. And by nature, we shrink from standing out and being different like that. We tend to think that only if we blend with people are we going to be able to get alongside people and share the gospel with them. That is the recipe for compromising the gospel and losing the gospel. The truth is that it is only by being different and alongside people that we will ever share the blessing of knowing God with them. Otherwise, we are just going to be reflecting back to them what the culture is already shoving down their throats. And the last thing is that we're called not to belong to this world. Look on to verse 8. From there, the oak of Shechem, Abram moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west 
and AI on the east. That would be more or less like Chapel House and Benwell, a few miles apart. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. So these two places, Bethel, A, they were only, a, A-I, however you pronounce it, they were only a few miles apart, and both decent places to live, and certainly much more secure than pitching your tent in the middle of nowhere. But what does Abraham do? He pitches his tent in the middle of nowhere. He chooses between them. And that was the story of his life. He lived as someone who didn't really belong in the Canaanite world around him. Of course, he lived among them and related to them because he wanted to be a blessing to them. But he didn't belong to their world and its priorities and its values. And in the world 4,000 years on from Abraham, uh, nor can we if we're following the call of Jesus. So that is the call of Abraham. I hope that Ken is going to return you to uh, another series on Genesis that will kick off and see how that all pans out. But the call of Abraham is actually about the plan that Jesus calls us all into through the gospel. And it's about the people we're called to be if, like Abraham, we want to be part of that plan. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that, like Abram, we share the privilege of not being left to live our lives in ignorance of you, in the dark, serving the wrong things, messing ourselves up. Thank you that we have the even greater privilege than him of your complete word to us in Jesus in the Bible. Please help us to understand your plan better and to live our lives in line with it more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.